This is Sarah Stewart-Holland. And this is Beth Silvers. Thank you for joining us for Pantsuit Politics. It's Beth, and I am so glad you're here with us today. I am thrilled to be sharing a conversation with McKay Coppins with you. McKay is a staff writer at The Atlantic and the New York Times bestselling author of Romney, A Reckoning. You know that I have been obsessed with this book since I read it back in October, and I love this conversation. Before we jump into it, let me remind you that if you're still working on your holiday gifting, we can help. We have lots of fun Pantsuit Politics merchandise on our website. You can grab something for yourself or the friend that you always text with about the episodes. You can get some best holiday available to you wrapping paper to ensure the whole holiday has a little pantsuit politics flair to it. If you use the wrapping paper, please tag us on social media and show us. We would love to see it be a present to us. Okay, McKay Coppin's book has been everywhere this fall, and it has been on my mind for a ton of reasons, mostly, I think, because it's a book about soul searching. The longer Sarah and I make pantsuit politics, the more I would describe it as a podcast about political soul searching. Sarah and I are trying to practice all week, every week. How can we test our beliefs? How can we challenge our assumptions? How can we ask what we've rationalized in the past and how we feel about that rationalization? Can we try to see more clearly what we might be rationalizing today? But that process is different for every person and the stakes are different for every person. So Mitt Romney's soul-searching process has taken place in a very high-stakes way for him, for his family, for the country. I wanted to talk with McKay about Mitt Romney, not because I think he's a hero or a villain. I loved this book because it showed the senator for all of his success and notoriety and wealth as just a person, a person who holds grudges, watches TV, puts salmon on hamburger buns with ketchup, loves his wife, worries about what people think of him. He is also a person who's recently engaged in a deep examination of what has motivated his decisions. At poignant moments, Mitt Romney has asked, are my actions consistent with others' expectations of me or with my expectations for myself? He's passed and failed his own assessments in varying degrees. I think any of us engaged in an honest reckoning about ourselves would come to that conclusion. And I think this reckoning has been informative, but not necessarily transformative for Mitt Romney. Just this week, he's tweeted about clueless Dems. He said he doesn't attach great importance to everything Donald Trump has said in response to questions about Trump's comments that he would be a dictator on day one of his presidency, but not after. I find all of that kind of relatable, that Mitt Romney has this deep disappointment in his party. He's personally hurt. He's professionally incredulous. But he is in so many ways the same man who was the Republican nominee for president not too long ago. I like Mitt Romney. I do not idolize him. And that's why I think McKay's book provides such a compelling case study in personal stock taking. I hope you'll enjoy this conversation as much as I did. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. 
Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Coppins, thank you so much for coming to Pansy Politics. Thanks for having me on. You wrote my favorite book of the year by far. That's so nice. Thank you. I think it really met me where I am in a lot of ways because I was a Republican, registered Republican until 2019. I just changed my registration to be Republican again so that I could vote against Donald Trump in the upcoming primary. I just have this ongoing struggle with where I fit in today's political scene. Uh, I also recognize a lot of the less flattering parts of myself in Mitt Romney. So I loved, I loved this book. I know that you've talked about it a lot. Since we're talking near the end of the year, when a lot of us are doing stock takes anyway, I wanted to go through what I saw as the themes of the book that allowed Mitt Romney to do this therapeutic process with you that he went through. So I wondered if we could talk about what we can all learn from those themes. It seems to start to me with a precipitating event. And I keep asking myself if January 6th was that for Mitt Romney or if that is a little too simplistic. No, I think I think that's fair. I think that he might have already been doing some reflection kind of privately. But I think that January 6th and everything that happened to him personally, you know, himself kind of narrowly escaping this mob that had broken into the Capitol and kind of what he felt it meant about the country and kind of the fragile state of democracy in America. All of that led him to be willing to kind of 
be vulnerable in public, or at least to start in front of me as a biographer, right? It's interesting because I approached him about doing this book right after January 6th. I think it was the the first text message I sent about it was literally like a couple days later. And and then a few weeks later was our first conversation. I remember there were still barbed wire fencing around the Capitol when we had our first meeting about it. And it really did seem like something had sort of shaken loose in him after January 6th. And I think it does sometimes take like a really dramatic almost traumatic event to cause us to sort of take stock. And he was very clearly to me asking himself difficult questions about, you know, the the state of his party, the state of the country. And he was sort of ready in an interesting way to look back on his own life and career and take stock of where he had made mistakes and where he had compromised on his principles and uh, in the name of ambition or career or or partisan tribalism. And as a writer, that made him such an interesting subject because it is very rare. I can say this as somebody who's profiled a lot of politicians for magazines, <laughs> and it is very rare to have them in that kind of vulnerable place. So I do think January 6th was sort of a, a catalyzing moment for him. Did that catalyzing moment have to come back around in your conversations. It felt as a reader like you got several versions of Mitt Romney as you spent time with him over the years because none of us are consistent. And I wonder if there were times when you felt him pulling back a little and you had to sort of remind him of why you were doing this. I do think that part of my role as his biographer and as a journalist was to sort of remind him of that feeling he had in the days and weeks and months after January 6th. You know, in one of our very first conversations after we started working on the book, and this was still just a few months after January 6th, he showed me this map on the wall of his office. And I I kind of opened the book with it. And it's called the Histo map. And the idea of this map is that it charts the rise and fall of the most powerful civilizations throughout human history. So you look at it and it shows as it goes along a timeline, the Greeks and the Romans and the Assyrians and the Egyptians. And he showed me this map and he said, you know, the thing that sticks out to me now looking at this map is how how rare it is for democracies to thrive. Throughout human history, most of the the most powerful civilizations were autocracies of some kind, right? And it, it, it's kings and emperors and, and kaisers and rulers. And, and it's very rare for a thriving civilization to be based on the idea of self-government and self-rule. And, and he told me, and again, this is just after January 6th, he told me, I, I, I genuinely wonder if we are taking for granted America's commitment to democracy. He actually told me a very large portion of my party really doesn't believe in the Constitution. And that was that was his revelation after January 6th. But as you mentioned, I spent two years interviewing him for this book, and we would meet all the time. It was 45 interviews by the end. And there were times, you know, months, years later, years into this process, where it felt like he was sort of uh, you know, maybe losing sight of that key revelation he had had because he still had a day job as a senator and he would get pulled back into the morass of, you know, daily partisan politics and legislating and the back and forth between Democrats and Republicans and, you know, some unfair story that was written about him in the press. And and these things would become distractions. And there were times where I felt like I had to kind of be like, you know, remember the the map on the wall? 
you know, <laughs> remember that, that, that feeling you had, do you still worry about that? In fact, I remember one time it was near Christmas, uh, I think 2021. So this is now about a year after January 6th. I was in his office, uh, his Senate office late at night. Most of his staff had gone home or gone to Christmas parties. And, um, I was kind of pressing him on this question because he he had decided he wasn't going to join Democrats in voting for a, a voting rights bill. And he had some, you know, objections to it, some specific policy objections that I thought were reasonable. But I actually read him a, a snippet from an Atlantic essay that one of my colleagues had written recently, where he kind of critiqued Mitt Romney and said, Romney has moral courage. He's capable of moral courage. But after the immediate crisis of Trump's presidency passed, uh, Romney returned to the narrow thinking of a party man. And I, I kind of read that to him in part to get a rise out of him a little bit and to needle him, but also in part to to sort of remind him, like, you know, you you have recognized the kind of potentially fatal weaknesses in American democracy at this moment and in your own party. And and I'm wondering if you've lost sight of it or if you've changed your mind or if you've evolved. And he actually did, to his credit, when I would do that, kind of he he was humble enough to sort of sit back and take stock and reevaluate. He, you know, sometimes he would start off defensive. You know, I, I wasn't trying to convince him of anything, right? I didn't feel like that was my role as a writer. It was just I just wanted to kind of see if his mind had changed or his thinking had evolved. And and often in in the course of that conversation, he would go back to sort of taking stock and say, you know, you know, that might be right. Let me think about it this way. And so he was remarkably vulnerable for a sitting politician. He would become defensive or maybe get a little angry or, you know, we'd have kind of confrontational conversations, but then he would circle back and start again. And and I thought that, again, made him a really compelling subject, but also kind of, I, I think there's something admirable in that. That segues really nicely to what I saw as the next ingredient of his reckoning, which is like a sense of duty. That to me speaks to the the histomath as a reminder of some of the standards that he that he feels obligated to uphold as a as an elected official. Also, though, throughout the book, the references to his dad felt like they created a sense of duty, and also just his talents, like the way he loves to fix a disaster. I wonder how much you saw his sense of obligation pushing him in this process. There's no question. I mean, the story he tells himself about his family and his heritage and his own identity is is built around this this term that he uses called the Romney obligation. And he he talks about a lot about it in his dad. His dad was the, you know, liberal governor of Michigan. He was an auto executive ran for president as a liberal Republican in the 1960s. And he said that, you know, my dad always had this tendency to never, never be comfortable to rest on his laurels, right? Like he, he, he had made a fortune running an auto company in Detroit. And, you know, he mid said, like, my dad could have just, you know, enjoyed his fortune and retired, but he always had this obligation to kind of be anxiously engaged in a good cause. He wanted to be fixing problems and and giving of himself in a kind of public spirited way. And Mitt felt that he inherited that. He, you know, he made his own much larger fortune as a as a businessman and management consulting and then private equity. But when the Olympics called and the Salt Lake City Olympics were in trouble and the and he was approached about taking them over to turn it around. It was actually his wife, Anne, who said, your life should be about more than making money. 
And that really kind of like struck a nerve with him because he knew his dad had been that way, right? His dad's life was was about more than making money. In fact, his dad had died not long after Mitt Romney's first Senate bid, his failed Senate bid in Massachusetts. And when he went to the funeral, the thing that stood out to him was that most of the people who were there to mourn him were not talking about his successful business career or his ability to exceed quarterly profit expectations, right? They were there to pay tribute to a public servant. And Mitt felt this this compulsion always throughout his life to kind of do, be bigger, to do follow his dad's example, to to use his talents, to do something. And I write in the book that his defining trait is a meld of moral obligation and personal hubris. And I, I think that, that that is true, that like sometimes it could manifest in sort of hubristic ways. Like he he really believes that he can solve almost any problem if he's kind of given the ability to. But it also can manifest in really kind of, you know, good and admirable ways. And he is somebody who I think part of the the reckoning that happened is a product of his his um desire to leave a a positive legacy behind. That specific flavor of arrogance is something that I see in myself as well. <laughs> it was a little a little hard to read, uh, but but helpful. Well, wait, can I ask you about that before you move yeah, on? Because I, sure. I, I, well, I'm just curious. Like, so I don't know if it's a bad thing. Like, it, it's funny because I was talking to somebody else about this book, and and he said the thing that comes through reading this book is that Mitt Romney has a lot of moral vanity. You know, like he thinks of himself as mm-hmm. a good person, an important person, and that's very important to his conception of himself. But the, the argument that this this friend was making was like, I actually don't know that we are suffering from a surplus of moral vanity in our politics right now. Like, if anything, it might we might have like too much amorality, right? Like too much nihilism in our politics. And maybe it's good for us to kind of see ourselves as good people and then hold ourselves to those standards. Like, do you feel like it's a bad thing that you have that brand of arrogance? I think it's both. You know, it just depends on how I deploy it. Right. But I love that you brought this up because Sarah and I were having a conversation about this book and how it is probably the most widely read book in Congress right now. At least I hope it is. <laughs> and then you see all of these people running for the exits. Just today, we're learning Patrick McHenry, Kevin McCarthy aren't coming back. And I said to her, I hope that what people are taking from this book is not don't try to serve. I don't think that's the lesson of Mitt Romney's life at all. Not at all. And and I had this fear, actually, because in a couple of the early interviews I did about the book, actually, before it was even published, I kind of pre-recorded a couple interviews. And several people kind of told me, you know, reading this book was really demoralizing, like seeing how craven and cynical and hypocritical people are behind the scenes was really dispiriting. And, you know, on one hand, I wanted to reveal that. And I felt like an important part of this book was kind of exposing the depths of cynicism and hypocrisy behind the scenes. But the message was not walk away from politics altogether, like we should all throw our hands up. You know, I I think that like the messiness of Mitt Romney's political career, where he had major defeats and major triumphs, where he was sometimes the best version of himself and sometimes the worst, like that is just the reality of a human based politics. You know, like as long as humans are the ones who are running for office and making decisions, it's going to be messy. But what made Mitt Romney to the the extent that he can be looked at as a positive model 
for politics, it's that he never walked away, right? He he was constantly going back into the fray, right? I mean, after 2012, when he lost his second presidential campaign, he was ready to essentially retire from public life. And he tried. But when Donald Trump ran for president and then won the primary, and then especially after he won the presidency, Romney just felt this compulsion to kind of get back in the game. And he, you know, he wanted to steer the Republican Party away from Trumpism and he wanted to act as a check on what he considered Trump's more kind of authoritarian impulses. And he wanted to be there to help solve the big issues of the day. And, you know, he easily could have enjoyed his retirement. He's a very wealthy man. He has a great relationship with his wife and kids and grandkids, but he felt this duty to serve. And I think that what I hope people take away from the book is that it is really important to stay in the mix, but that also we should expect our politicians to be good people, right? This is like the, uh, the <laughs> one of my hobby horses is that like we have all internalized way too much cynicism about politics in the last 10 years to the point where I think it's very common for people on both the left and the right to say, oh, all politicians are bad. They're all snakes. We shouldn't expect, you know, them to to be good people and we should just vote our, our interests. Right. And I just think that's like wrong. Like, I think that's fundamentally wrong. I think the story of Mitt Romney is one of a guy who was constantly wrestling with his conscience. And sometimes he did the right thing and sometimes he did the wrong thing, but he had a functioning conscience and he was trying to to do what was right. And I think we should expect that from all of our politicians. We should not just throw our hands up and kind of give up on politics altogether. Yeah, what I took from the book in terms of public service is that if you are going this route and you really feel called to do it, you need a lot of anchors in your life mm. that that Anne was and is essential, that his children were and are essential. I was having a conversation about our Republican Secretary of State in Kentucky, Michael Adams, who has been exceptional. He has been such a good public servant, such a good partner to our Democratic governor, even as they don't always agree. And I was talking about his political future with someone, and I found myself thinking as they were saying, you know, he might run for governor, he might run for Senate. I just kept thinking, I hope that doesn't ruin him. And what a sad instinct on my part. I know. <laughs> and, and so I guess I just am trying to look at this book and think, you know, what do people need to not be ruined by this process? Because the, the answer can't be no good people in public service. It has to be more of them just surrounded by more support. And I guess a public that is willing to give them a little bit more grace than we tend to. I, I do think we as voters, as constituents, <laughs> should should maybe have slightly more realistic expectations of our po political leaders. But I want to talk about the other thing you said, this idea of having anchors in your life. So I, I write in the epilogue of the book about this kind of really interesting body of, of research. And I, I only kind of glance at it, but it's something I want to look at more and hopefully write about more in the future. But there, there's this interesting body of research that shows that the effect of power on the brain and what it shows basically is that when we are feeling powerful, when people are feeling powerful, they become less empathetic, more impulsive, less able to uh, mimic other people's experiences. And you can imagine when people are powerful for a very long time, most of these studies are done with something called power priming, where they basically average people and get them to think about times when they had power in their lives and then 
these impulses start to flare up. But now apply that idea to people who are wealthy and powerful for years or even decades, right? What happens is something like brain damage, right? (laughs) Like you become, it's very hard to remain a grounded, normal person, an empathetic person when you have a lot of power. But what experts say, and, and this shows up a lot in the lives of, you know, great leaders we see is that the more toeholds you have in your life, the more people in your life who can call you out and keep you grounded and correct you and who have known you for a long time from before you were powerful, the better off you are. And Mitt Romney has in a lot of ways kind of built a life around toe holders. He's still married to his high school sweetheart. They have a, you know, very mutually respectful relationship. It's kind of amazing when you read the book, how often Anne pops up at kind of crucial moments in his career to give him advice and end up steering him in the direction he would end up going. But he also has, you know, relationships with his sons and his his uh, daughters-in-law and his grandkids. I spent a day up at his kind of family compound in in New Hampshire on Lake Winnipesaukee one summer during their family reunion, you can just tell that he has put in the time to maintain these relationships. And I think that really matters because, again, I mentioned I've spent a lot of time interviewing, profiling powerful people throughout my career. And and a lot of people get to the point that Mitt Romney's at. They're in their 70s and they've made a lot of money and they've had phenomenally successful careers and they're powerful and famous. And then they look around and they realize that their family life is kind of a disaster. You know, a lot of them are divorced or or estranged from their kids or, or you know, not they don't have great marriages. And I think one of the keys to Mitt Romney's success in life, but also his ability to kind of reckon with his mistakes is that he has these relationships. He's put the time and care into nurturing these relationships with people who can be frank with him and be honest with him about where he's erring or where he's kind of getting away from himself. I wonder if that on its own is enough to lead someone down this path of self-reflection or if a foil is also necessary. I, could Mitt <laughs> Romney have gotten here without Donald Trump? Yeah, it's a great, a great point. You're actually, I think, the first one who's asked me that question in exactly that way. I mean, the, this whole conversation has been unique, but I think that that is a, an interesting insight. I think that in some ways it would be hard to find two people who are more different from each other than Donald Trump and Mitt Romney, right? <laughs> um, like. And it's weird because they're both, you know, Republican politicians who are wealthy white men. So you you would say, well, (laughs) there are a lot of people who are very different. But everything about their value systems, their approaches to the world, what they consider important and and what they consider not important, very different. And I think that part of what kind of woke Mitt Romney up and and compelled him to kind of rush towards this crisis was his personal kind of revulsion at Donald Trump's character. Mm -hmm. And this came up again and again in our conversations. Like on one level, he actually kind of considered it an analytical failure on his part that he had such a hard time understanding why people liked Donald Trump. You know, he would tell me, I understand why people would vote for Donald Trump in a two party system. You know, you're you're making trade offs. And I understand that there are a lot of voters who feel left behind by the political class. and, And I get all that. 
And he's like, I just can't understand people who like the way Donald Trump is, you know, <laughs> the, the, the vulgarity and the mistreatment of women and the, the kind of way that he almost dares people in this like subversive way to abandon him. And then the, the subversive thrill that supporters feel and not abandoning him. He, he just doesn't understand that on kind of a visceral level. But I do think that having him as a foil probably did make him more like it, it gave him a, a certain amount of like energy and vigor in this fight. Because I, I, I think otherwise Mitt Romney probably wouldn't have gotten to the point where he was asking himself quite as many difficult questions about his own career and the far right elements of his party and where he had made compromises because he didn't see kind of the worst manifestation of that kind of far right ethos that he had sometimes indulged. Um, and to him, Donald Trump was the kind of worst case scenario manifestation of a toxic form of politics that had always existed in his party. But it's funny because it seems like two things are true, that he both had that revulsion and an attraction to Trump. You write about how he he found him very entertaining for some period of time. He did. So he he knew Trump, you know, all the way back in the 90s. He first met him. I write about his first kind of surreal visit to Mar-a-Lago. And it's not that, you know, I don't think he ever would have been like good buddies with Donald Trump, right? But for a long time in the 90s and the, the early 2000s, he would have these run-ins with Trump and kind of be like, oh man, what a crazy guy, you know? <laughs> like his, his, his reaction to Trump was, this guy is an outrageous celebrity, right? Like a loudmouth celebrity. So when you think of somebody that way, there's something almost kind of dehumanizing about it, right? Like, I, I don't think Romney was spending a lot of time thinking about Donald Trump's character or his morality. He just kind of saw him as like a TV character almost that he would sometimes run into at, you know, Patriots games or at fundraisers or whatever. And he, they would have conversations where Trump would just say outrageous things and and Romney, you know, found him funny. He actually wrote in his journal. I, I found, you know, he had Romney handed over all his journals. And I found one entry buried in, in the 2012 journals where he, he talks about a phone call he had had with Trump. And he said, uh, you know, they just don't make him like Donald Trump anymore. The guy is the real deal. No veneers, says whatever he thinks, you know. And when I read that to Romney, you can imagine he was like kind of chagrined by it. Right. But what he said was, you know, it kind of shows the seductive quality Donald Trump has as a personality, right? Like he has a lot of charisma. He has a larger than life persona. And when you're one on one with him, and if you're not thinking too hard about him as a person, and certainly not as a politician, you can be kind of seduced by it. What changed for Romney was once he started seeing Donald Trump as a serious political figure who was the leader of his party, that's where he he the revulsion really kicked in because he had never in a million years thought of Donald Trump as somebody who would be qualified to run for office, let alone, you know, be in possession of the nuclear launch codes. And I think that kind of changed his his personal visceral reaction to Trump and also his calculation and in, in terms of how dangerous he was. It makes me think about the two of them as like like magnetic poles that they're they're mm. opposite, but there is that attraction. And maybe that's why Trump was such a good foil for him. Mm -hmm. I think that's true. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. 
It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day, Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your Wild Grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. Mitt Romney expressed a lot of his disgust with people to you in the book, and he's such an aristocrat that some of the the dishiness of the book really struck me. He has to know how petty it sounds. <laughs> I wonder <laughs> if that is is venting or confession or some combination of those things, and and how necessary is it to put those like ugly parts of yourself on the table when you're going through a process like this? So it's funny because when the book came out. 
some of the first things to get attention were these like roundups, like the New York Times and Politico did these stories that were like Mitt Romney's burn book. And like it was just like all the meanest things he had said about various prominent Republican politicians in my book. And I think a lot of the context was lost, obviously, in those in the way that coverage happened. You know, for one thing, some of these were things that he told me over the course of our two years of interviews. A lot of them were things that he had written in his journal, which, you know, going back 10 years or more that I don't know he ever thought would be fully public. Right. And and he later kind of let it be known that when he gave me his journals, he had not taken the time to reread them. Um, <laughs> and there was a lot in there that I don't think he quite, you know, realized was in there. And Anne has kind of joked, like, if he had asked me, I might have said, maybe you reread them before you uh, give them to a journalist. But I do think that that level of disclosure is probably necessary for a true reckoning. You know, I haven't spent a lot of time in therapy, but like it does seem from what I've read about it, like it is pretty important to be fully honest with yourself and about yourself. Right. And I think that that's part of what was happening is his willingness to hand over all of his journals, hand over his emails. Like he, he sent me hundreds and hundreds of emails with various politicians, some of which made him look good and some of which made him look less good. You know, like a lot of the stuff in his book and in his emails you know, like it was a mixed bag in terms of how Mitt Romney came out looking. But I think it speaks to just like how ready he was to be vulnerable with me, that he was willing to kind of give all this stuff up. And you're right, like some of it makes him look petty. I think that the way I, I put it is that I think it, it reflects like how heartbroken he is by what his party has become, because a lot of the comments that he's made about these Republican leaders are in the context of like watching these people who he once had a lot of respect for, in his view, sell out their ideals and their principles to get reelected and to stay on the right side of Donald Trump. And for him, he's devoted his adult life to this party. And, you know, seeing that happen has just been really kind of devastating for him. And but the so a lot of it is venting. But I do think you're right that, like, he was willing to show himself every side of himself, warts and all. Uh, in a way that ultimately, and, and I made this case to him and more to the people around him sometimes who were really nervous about how much he was giving me, uh, you know, I, I think it creates a more human portrait of him. You know, I think that you come away reading this book feeling like you have a sense of this guy who is definitely not perfect. He's a flawed human, but but it makes you kind of more endeared to him because he's willing to be so vulnerable. Whereas if he had held back those parts of himself, I think that he he wouldn't have come off looking as real, but also I don't think he would have been able to really embark on this kind of reflection without it. Well, McKay, I have spent a lot of time in therapy and I feel like it's hard to be this vulnerable in that process. Like I spent mm. a lot of time trying to get an A plus in therapy. <laughs> and as I read this book, I kept thinking like, what an extraordinary container for reflection to be able to hand to someone all of your email to be able to hand them your journals. I wonder for those of us who are not going to have a biographer, you know, how we get that sort of container that you created for Mitt Romney for self-reflection. Man, it's a great question. I have to say that I often found myself wondering, like, would I be willing to just give all of my emails and journals to anybody, you know, <laughs> like, let alone a journalist who is going to publish them, but even just anyone. Like, I think that the the human impulse to 
hide parts of yourself is incredibly strong. And, and I mean, probably healthy at some points, right? I don't think we need to reveal everything about ourselves to everyone. But like, you know, my wife has often joked while I was working on the book that I know Mitt Romney better than I know her <laughs> at this point. And, and, you know, she'd be like, I mean, look, you haven't read all my journals. You know, <laughs> you, you don't know every inner thought that I've had, but you apparently do with Mitt Romney. I mean, I, I do think that like, I'll, I'll just speak for myself. Like part of the joy of working on this book was in how I was able to kind of turn the questions that I asked him on myself, right? Because one of the the themes of the book is, is self-rationalization. And Mitt has talked to me a lot about moments in his career where he found himself rationalizing things that were in his self-interest and kind of convincing himself that these were the right things to do. And because I was thinking so much about it in the writing of this book and talking to him about it all the time, talking to the people in his inner circle and family about it, I inevitably ended up asking myself a lot about like, when am I rationalizing things that are in my self-interest? When am I engaging in this kind of self-justification? And I can't claim to have like reached, you know, peak enlightenment there, but I do think just the kind of process and act of asking myself that question when I'm confronted with some kind of ethical dilemma or even just kind of uh, making decisions about my life and career, like I think acting like, Am I actually doing what's right here or am I just doing what's easy and convenient? I think that is better than than nothing, right? At least that is like helping me kind of keep <laughs> keep my conscience engaged, if that makes sense. It does. And it feels so hard to me because I think so much of how we rationalize depends on our time frame. I wonder if Mitt Romney could have done this 10 years ago. His age seems to be a big component of it, his his release of the idea that he's ever going to be the president, also his obsession with his own mortality. I was in a fatal car crash in high school. Oh, wow. And so when I read that he had that experience, I, I had to stick with those couple of pages for a few minutes and think about it. But that all feels essential to being able to do the the true hard look at your career that he was trying to do here. There's no question. He, I actually asked him at one point, you know, would you have been able to take this same like lonely principled stand to vote to convict Trump in that first impeachment when he was the only Republican if you had been in this position 30 years ago? And he he was honest with me and he, he said, you know, I don't know if I can answer that. And he said, I think I recognize now my capacity for self-rationalization that I didn't recognize 30 years ago, right? And th this question of like how, you know, how to look at the big picture when we're in like the grind of our daily lives is is really hard. This is another thing that I, I wrestled with a lot because Romney now is in, is in the twilight of his career. He's in his mid-70s. He, like you said, is already predisposed to think about his death and he's kind of been stalked by premonitions of death throughout his life, probably pegged to that that early experience he had, that car crash. But um, because of that, he's able to kind of look at his life in a in longer term. And he he thinks a lot about his legacy and both his public le legacy, but even more importantly, like what his kids and grandkids and great grandkids are going to remember about him. Like what are what are the stories that people are going to tell about him to them? Part of this also is like is religious for him. Like he his 
his Mormon, his Mormon beliefs are really intertwined with this idea of like owing something to your ancestors and, uh, and your, your progeny, right? Like he believes that his family relationships are the most important things in his life, both in this life and eternally. And so because of that, like he really does want them to remember him well. The trick though, and this is, I think what you were getting at is that like, it's really hard to think in those terms when you're in your thirties or forties and you feel like you're, you know, you've still got so much life left to live and you're just trying to, you know, advance in your career or pay your mortgage or, you know, get through your day with the kids and spouse or whatever. And when he and I would talk about what are the lessons of his, his life and career, one of them was like the trick to getting our politicians to follow their conscience to do what's right is I think getting getting them to think about their legacies and like what their obituaries are going to say um, when they're younger. Uh, you know, think about think more about what your obituary is going to say than what the next day's newspaper article is going to say. And that is much easier said than done. But I do think that's one of the secrets to incentivizing, you know, moral, ethical behavior in our political leaders. And that makes me wonder can a group go through this process? You know, you read the whole book and think the the entirety of the Republican Party could use this moment, probably the Democratic Party too, probably a lot of community organizations and schools and churches. Do you think a group can do this or is it necessarily an individual pursuit? Mm-hmm. It's a good question. I, no, I mean, I, I don't know. It has to be fully individual. And in fact, in this case, it wasn't fully individual, right? He was having these conversations with his wife and with his kids and then with me, right? So in part, I actually do think he needed the process of an interlocutor, you know, somebody who came over to his house once a week. And, you know, I I don't think he is in therapy, but like in a way, our two years of interviews were therapeutic and cathartic in nature. But, you know, he had a, a person who came to his house to ask him these difficult questions. And, you know, maybe maybe that can be replicated at the community level. You know, all of us kind of asking ourselves difficult questions. But, you know, part of the trick, and this is just my approach as a, as a journalist, I think other journalists have different approaches, but like, I try when I am sitting down with this subject to not be hyper adversarial right off the bat, right? Like you need to create a rapport and some amount of trust to get anything approaching like honesty or candor, especially from a political leader. But I think this is true of anyone. And so, you know, I tried to 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 show that I was, you know, really listening to him. And so I, I think that there are lessons there that could be replicated at community levels in churches or schools or, you know, at the political level. The key is that nobody ever feels like they're being listened to, especially at this political moment, right? No one feels heard. And, um, you know, Amanda Ripley is a journalist who wrote a book called High Conflict about how to engage in healthy conflict. And she talks about how one of the, the keys to having any kind of productive conflict or conversations about difficult issues is that we have to show to each other that we're hearing what they're saying 
And that involves, you know, repeating back what they're saying in our own language to kind of prove that we're listening to them. I think that there's a lot of wisdom in that and not nearly enough of it is is happening in our politics right now. I'm glad that you mentioned your process as a biographer. We always end with something on our minds outside of politics. And I wanted to know what forces have really shaped you as a writer. There were several sentences in this book that that just kind of took my breath away. I thought, I, I wish I could write a sentence that well. So <laughs> tell me how you have developed your craft. And that's very nice of you to say. How have I developed my craft? I mean, I am one of these like weird kids who knew I wanted to be a writer from the time I was like 11 years old. And I would write little short stories and uh, and try to sell them to my parents for like 25 cents. I produced a family newspaper with my siblings. So I've always been interested in writing and reading. But like, you know, when people ask me about like, what is the the secret to like learning how to write? Like, first of all, I, I always answer that I will let you know when I learn how to write. <laughs> I, I feel like I'm incredibly hard on myself, at, like most writers that I know. But I think the the answer is like, you just have to do it a lot. You have to write a lot and read a lot. And um, and and that, you know, I think in terms of what's shaped my perspective as a writer, I think a lot of, you know, being growing up uh, in Massachusetts as a Mormon kid, you know, like made me kind of an outsider in some ways that I think have actually been really useful as a journalist. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that um, I've had a lot of life experiences that have taught me how to uh, be a good listener and observe uh, little details about human interactions that have shown up in my pieces. But in terms of just the craft of writing, like there really is no shortcut beyond practicing all the time and then reading the best writers that you can. It is this really interesting mix going back to our specific flavor of arrogance. I feel like being a good writer has to be this combination of really believing that you have something to say or a way of saying it that people can hear, while also being willing to get out of the way. Mm. And mm. I don't know, I feel like that's a, a lifetime of, of practice trying to develop the, the balance <laughs> of those two things. Well, and I would also say, like, I know I've gotten to know a lot of writers, obviously, in my my career. And we all have our own kind of coping mechanisms for how to feel like we can finally show something that we're writing to another person because writing inherently is like incredibly solitary and incredibly vulnerable. You know what, regardless of what, whether you're writing about yourself or your own life or not, like it, it showing something that you've written to somebody else is just like an act of enormous vulnerability. <laughs> and the way that I end up doing it when my editor is demanding that I show her a draft of, you know, a feature that I've been writing or an essay or something is that I, I literally take like half an hour before I, I send it to her to type out all of my like caveats <laughs> and apologies for <laughs> where I'll say like, okay, I'm sending this to you, but I know the the beginning of it is a mess and I know the middle part needs this and this and this. And I'm not sure if this theme is really coming through. And I, I like I literally will like write out all of my insecurities about the piece. And because I have a good relationship with this editor, like I trust her to not like, you know, use it against me or to like laugh at me, although she does sometimes laugh at me. I also know writers who um, go the opposite way, where they have to like perform this huge amount of confidence when they turn a piece in that I'm, I, I, I don't know if they really feel or not, but they'll be like, I feel great about this one. Here you go. 
And I personally can't relate to that at all, but I think it's their way of like convincing themselves to just turn something in, you know, but we all kind of have ways to like grapple with the vulnerabilities and insecurities of writing, because I do think it's like, you know, I, I try not to be too precious about this because writing ultimately is like, if you look at the 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 entire like menu of potential jobs you could have as a human, like writing is a pretty privileged one, you know. Um, I'm not you know digging holes for a living, but like it, but it is like it takes a lot of vulnerability to write things for other people to read, and so we all have our own ways of kind of dealing with that. I think. I think that that sense of listing all the insecurities and caveats is why the universe gifted me with a podcast and why podcasting is like memeable as an exercise in confidence because you just have to do it. Yeah. And doing it with someone else means that you are releasing control over what the final product is going to be. And so we just constantly tell ourselves, well, you know what? We're going to make another one. <laughs> there will always be another one. This is maybe why podcasters are like inherently just more mentally healthy than writers. That's going to be my that's 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 my working premise. <laughs> that's a very emotionally healthy uh, approach to uh, creating content for the world. I attribute it completely to my partner. That's another thing. I'm glad I, I'm glad I don't have a solo pursuit. Well, it has been such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much for the book and for spending time with me. Hey, thank you so much. I appreciate you having me on. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you.
you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Thank you so much to McKay for this conversation that I'll be thinking about for a long time. And I want to share a bit of another conversation I keep returning to before we go. We host a book club for our premium members. And this fall, we included Jane Ferguson's No Ordinary Assignment. Jane is an award-winning foreign correspondent for PBS NewsHour, contributor to The New Yorker, and McGraw Professor of Journalism at Princeton University. I had the pleasure of speaking with Jane about her book in a conversation that I found moving and insightful and delightful. And we wanted to share a few minutes of it with all of you. Well, we're talking to a group of people, many of whom will have read the book by the time they hear this conversation. And I know that they're going to have lots of questions about your writing process. So I wanted to start there if we could. As I was reading the book, I have two daughters They both were very interested in what I was reading because you have such an arresting cover. And my older daughter, Jane, uh, has been talking to me about what's in the book and what should she understand about it. And I said, this is one that I would really love for you to read. And it made me wonder, as I'm telling my seventh grader, you should read this book, who you wrote this book for? Who was the audience that you had in mind as you were working on the book? Thank you for asking that question because I, I, I love that question. You know, I wrote the book for, for anybody really, you know, I very much so didn't want to write just for foreign correspondents to read, you know, as journalists read each other's books. I wanted predominantly though, to really write this book for young people. I was increasingly concerned by how much, like the more successful I was becoming professionally, the more I was doing these events where I would talk to young people, young journalists or students, and I could see them looking at me and starting to ask questions that told me they thought I had all of it figured out, that I had had this incredibly successful, straight trajectory, upward ascent in my career. And it mattered to me to tell those young people that that was absolutely not the case, that I have failed, I have fallen on my face, I have massively doubted myself, I've struggled, and that's normal and that's totally fine. And it mattered to me that young people didn't let things stop them. You know, there were so many moments in my career where I could have just given up and I wanted young people to see what it really is like warts and all. So they wouldn't feel as though they were failing or, you know, no matter what career they're in, something competitive, something highly ambitious, something people tell you not to bother even trying with. I wanted them to see what 
the real underbelly of actually making your dreams come true looks like so that they wouldn't give up. And in your case, what that looks like took so much resourcefulness. You know, I was doing the math, so I'm, I'm a few years older than you. I think about the time that you were learning Arabic in Yemen. I was starting my career in a law firm, and I was so frustrated as a new lawyer at the fact that I was showing up every day waiting for someone to give me work to do because I thought, you're, you're paying me. I would like to work. And I didn't really understand how long it takes to build a pipeline of work. And I felt so bratty reading your book and thinking about the fact that you're out there doing the work and saying, will someone please pay me for this incredibly valuable, risky, dangerous thing I'm attempting to give you? So tell me about where you think you got that inner resolve. Like, I am just going to do the work and, and trust that it will pay off at some point. You know, I think a big part of it was the fact that I didn't really want to do anything else. You know, I was, I had had this calling since I was a little girl. This is kind of all that I wanted to do. And, and the reality is I didn't really have a plan B. I just, I decided I'd rather be broke doing what I love and, you know, struggling and trying to do that than give up. And, on top of that, I also just had to have a blind faith that it would somehow work out. I look back at that young girl now and I, I smile at her optimism, you know? I mean, it's great that I was so naive because if I'd been more wily and worldly, I probably might have quit, you know? Um, so I think that I had to believe it was going to work out for me. Also, there are career struggles, but in between all of those career, you know, fears, um, trying to make ends meet, trying to pay the bills, struggling and failing to pay the bills. There are also these moments where you recognize that you absolutely love the work. You know, I mean, I, I had such incredible moments on the road. I felt so connected to the storytelling and to the people that that really buoyed me and, and, and kept me moving forward. Um, you know, I, I, I had to, I had to believe that something I loved so much and that I was slowly, slowly figuring out how to do well would eventually work out for me. You can hear my full discussion with Jane on our premium show, More to Say, and you can use the information in our show notes to learn more about our premium community, where the first book boxes for our 2024 book club reads will go on sale next week. We partner with Lisa, a listener, and her independent bookstore for these boxes, which make fantastic gifts for you or others. Jane Ferguson and McKay Coppins in one episode is like a dream for me. Thanks to both of them and to all of you for supporting our work. We'll be back with you on Tuesday for a new episode. Until then, have the best weekend available to you. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our Managing Director. Maggie Pinton is our Director of Community Engagement. Xander Singh is the composer of our theme music with inspiration from original work by Dante Lima. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Tiffany Hassler. Emily Holliday. Katie Johnson. Katina Zuganellis-Kasling. Barry Kaufman. Molly Kors, Catherine Vollmer, Lori Ladau, Lily McClure, Linda Daniel, Emily Neasley, The Cousins, Tracy Putoff, Sarah Ralph, Jeremy Sequoia, Katie Steigers, 
Karen True, Annika Uveline, Nick and Elisa Valelli, Amy Whited, Emily Helen Olson, Lee Shea McDonough, Morgan McHugh, Jen Ross, Sabrina Drago, Becca Dorval, Christina Quartararo, Shannon Frawley, The Adair Family, Jeff Davis, Melinda Johnston, Michelle Wood, Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller.